Well, if you're listening, this recording might sound a little different than usual. Uh, I forgot to take my phone uh, to the pulpit this evening, um, so I wasn't able to record it during our service. But for those uh, who were a part of our congregation, um, or for those who might listen and weren't able to be with us on Christmas Eve, I just wanted to share uh, this this shorter sermon with you. And it comes uh, out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And the specific verse we'll consider in a moment is verse 9. Uh, as we begin, I'd like to introduce you to a wonderful couple from church history named John and Betty Stamm. They first met while attending Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and both felt a call from the Lord to serve in the mission field, specifically in China. It was the 1930s, and Betty went first, partnering with the CIM, China Inland Mission. And John would sail to China one year later. And on October 25th of 1933, John and Betty married. It was a tumultuous time. There was civil war in China between the government and the Communist Red Army, which made it a dangerous time for everyone, but especially for Chinese Christians and foreign missionaries. But one year later, John and Betty rejoiced at the birth of their daughter, a beautiful little girl they named Helen. And I'd like to read an account that is a bit lengthy but it was written about them by a man named Gordon Dunn. Dunn writes, John and Betty Stam were not the first missionaries to find their way to this isolated community of people, but they were the first to settle there as a family. Their first child, newborn Helen Priscilla, beautiful with blue eyes, innocent face, and curly hair, gladdened the hearts of the young couple. A rented shop front on a stone-flagged street served as their home and preaching chapel as well. John had demonstrated remarkable facility in speaking Chinese, fresh from language school. Now, however, he was married and wholly on his own for the first time on the mission field. It was now December 1934. The local authorities were caught off guard. As the bandit horde of Red Army soldiers piled into the city through the unguarded East Gate, the magistrate and his train barely escaped through the West Gate. By this time, it was, of course, too late for John and Betty even to think of fleeing. Better stay and weather the storm, they decided. But this storm was different from any the village had ever seen before. Wildly cheering The bandits at last broke through the Stam's front door. Urging them to sit down, John served the uninvited guests tea. But such courtesy was lost on the outlaws, who were out to avenge themselves on a thankless society. And John and Betty were ordered to get ready to leave. Although the Stam's had been in the village only a short time, many friends watched silently and helplessly from doorway and roadside as the young couple 
stripped of their outer garments, were paraded down the street. John's hands were tightly tied behind his back. Betty, on horseback, held baby Helen. No one who saw them dared to lift a finger to help, for the city was in the grip of lawless terror. Wealthy people, landlords, stragglers among government officials, and others were also taken captive. The communist bandits, perhaps fearing a counterattack, urgently herded their enemies of the people along the stone slab road that led to another village some 12 miles away. John's arms were probably unbound as the little family was thrust into a mud hut to spend the night. For in those first hours of captivity, John wrote a letter to the China Inland Mission leaders. It said in substance, My wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of communist bandits. Whether we will be released or not, no one knows. May God be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death. Philippians 1.20 And probably sometime during that night of prayer and suspense, Betty tucked her little daughter into her snuggle bunny, which was a hooded sleeping bag, and bundled her into a pile of heavy winter bedding. But what made the little baby sleep for 27 hours without a cry? A silence that saved her. What happened to the parents when the sun broke over the beautiful tree-covered hillside that December morning? These are questions we still ask. If there were eyewitnesses, we do not have their testimony. But we do know that the bandits moved on to fresh violence. We know that a courageous Chinese Christian, Mr. Lo, something of a lay evangelist, followed the trail as soon as he dared. It was he who found the bodies of John and Betty Stam, and at the risk of being discovered by lingering bandits, obtained coffins and sealed the bodies inside. The danger was by no means over. The times were so chaotic, in fact, that the coffins lay there for 40 days in the long grass of the hillside, before even government help could be secured to bring them out for burial. Having cared for the dead, Lo looked for the baby. He presumed she had been ruthlessly killed, too, or kidnapped. At any rate, there was no sign of the little foreign baby. Quite by accident, he eventually discovered her, still sleeping in the little hut, content and carefree, unaware that the sword had made her an orphan for life. But after her long fast, she was hungry. That she knew. In the baby's clothing, Lo found a $10 bill, miraculously still, where it was placed in faith and love by a tender mother, doubtless with the prayer that it might save her little one's life. That it did. Wonderfully, powdered milk, a rare commodity in those parts, was found. And the one person in the area who knew the proper formula was Lowe's wife. So when Helen arrived at the mission compound in Wuhu, carried there in a vegetable basket, 
She was puzzled, perhaps, but in good spirits and in good health. When the coffins were finally delivered to the missionary hospital in Wuhu, the heavy coffin lids were lifted to reveal the bodies. Lying on their backs, modestly clothed in their underwear, just as they had trod the streets a month and a half before. Each casket contained probably 100 pounds of lime. The bodies, wrapped in clean, white cotton sheeting, were preserved in good condition. What struck each of us who saw the bodies, and what made the sight unforgettable, was the underlying look of quiet peace and expectancy on the faces of the two martyrs. Their bodies lie buried in a little Christian cemetery on a quiet hillside in the rice bowl city of Wuhu. There, they await an Easter deliverance that was denied them on earth. The handful of China Inland Mission missionaries and local Christians at the simple burial service took comfort in God's assurance My ways are not your ways. Neither are your ways my ways. But more than one was heard to say, Why were the stamps, with all their gifts, taken at the very beginning of their missionary career? And why was I left? Now, why... On Christmas Eve, am I telling you about the martyrdom of John and Betty Stam? Well, there's one more name you need to know, and that's Frank Houghton. Frank later became an Anglican bishop, but he also served in the China Inland Mission. When the news of John and Betty's deaths came to the CIM headquarters in Shanghai, Frank Houghton was there on the ground. And he decided, despite the remaining danger to tour the country and visit various mission stations and to see the progress of their work. While he was traveling through the mountains, thinking of John and Betty, Frank was reminded of God's words in 2 Corinthians 8-9. Though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor. And these words he made into a hymn a hymn which we sang this evening entitled, Thou Who Wast Rich Beyond All Splendor. Frank Houghton, thinking of John and Betty's sacrifice for the sake of taking the gospel to the Chinese, moved in thought from the stams to the Lord Jesus Christ and the greater sacrifice he made on behalf of sinners reconciling them to himself. And so look at with me at 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It reads, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I mean, this is the great mystery which is Christmas. That God of gods 
light of light, would take on human flesh and be born of a woman. The second person of the Trinity became human. A helpless babe wrapped in blankets, just like baby Helen. The God whose throne is in glory became an infant in a manger. The creator of the heavens and earth was made a baby who cried when he was hungry. This great mystery is what astonished the angels and compelled them to fill the night sky singing songs of praise to their maker. That he who was rich beyond all splendor would become poor. And last night I sat with my family on the couch and watched the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. And as I wrote this, I thought of Mr. Potter, the villain of the story, the warped, frustrated old man who was the richest man in the county. And I thought, how might the people of Bedford Falls react? How might the urchins and riffraff that Mr. Potter despised, how would they have reacted if he'd parted with his vast wealth and become poor for their sakes? They'd probably be shocked. Well, the Lord Jesus is no Mr. Potter. He's not a warped, frustrated old man. He's not a spider. He's the sinless, holy son of God, the the fount of all goodness and blessing. And his wealth is incomprehensibly and infinitely immense. As the Lord of heaven and earth, all is his. Yet in the incarnation, he became poor. Thrones for a manger didst surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. This is why you and I give gifts at Christmas. Like small children imitating their parents, we give gifts because our Father in heaven gave the gift of gifts. For love's sake, the Son of God became man. Now, what did he come to do? I mean, did he just come to be our great moral teacher? No. Did he come to model for us how we are to love our fellow man? No. What did he come to do? Well, in the hymn, we, you can sing of it. Stooping so low, but sinners raising, heavenward by thine eternal plan. Just as you and I exchange gifts at Christmas, he came to make an exchange. He would descend to the earth, walk the dark road, be nailed to the cursed tree, and have his lifeless body carried and laid in a tomb so that his people might be raised heavenward with him. This is the eternal plan of God. It wasn't the result of Jesus convincing his father to show us kindness. It wasn't some plan B that was formulated after the failure in the Garden of Eden. It was planned from all eternity. 
And listen to John Calvin's description of the exchange the Lord makes with us. Calvin writes, This is the wonderful exchange, which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us, that by his descent to earth he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us, that by taking on our mortality he has conferred his immortality upon us, that accepting our weakness he has strengthened us by his power, that receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, which oppresses us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. This is why we praise him. Out of his great love for us, he stooped and suffered and died so that his own would surely be saved from all their sins. If you happen to read the hymn, it ends this way. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. Emmanuel, within us dwelling, make us what thou wouldst have us be. What is the only response on our part that is fitting for what's been done for us? It's worship. You know, we know there are lots of words associated with this time of the year. Words and descriptions of Christmas in song and on wrapping paper and on decorations. Words that we plant in our yards and light up uh, with spotlights. But the word that is commonly overlooked, but a word that most aptly describes Christmas, is worship. Worship of the Christ who became lowly. Worship of the Christ who was raised and is now seated on high in glory. But there's further application in this third verse. Not only should we worship, but there's also a petition Emmanuel, make us what thou wouldst have us be. Lord Jesus, may we not only be forgiven. Do more than that. Transform our lives that we might be more like you. Raise us heavenward so that we might more closely resemble the king of heaven. That thought was surely in the minds of John and Betty Stam. That's why they went to a place like China to begin with. They're going to that far off place in that dark time was but a mirror, an imitation of what Jesus Christ himself did. By his power and by his grace, may the same Christ-likeness be grown within your life. I pray that this Christmas you'd be given eyes to see the gift that is beyond all splendor and beyond all praising and beyond all telling. The Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you 
by his poverty, might become rich. Amen. And I do pray and hope that you have a very Merry Christmas.